thank you ladies for leading us in the offertory. Thank you choir for helping us sing. And thank you church for worshiping together in song this morning. I want to invite your attention into John chapter 2 as we unpack verses 1 through 12 this morning as you're turning. I'm going to invite our kids, children's church age. You can be dismissed to children's church this morning at this time. And uh, we will look at John chapter 2. We have unpacked chapter 1 for a while now and looking forward to what God has to say to us this morning in chapter 2. I have never done this but heard of pastors who have done both a wedding and a funeral in the same day. The atmosphere of those two services are polar opposites. Funerals are events of grief. Weddings are events of joy. A morbid wedding is really a contradiction in terms. A wedding is a joyful occasion. Well, today we, we come into John chapter 2 and are preaching what John calls Jesus' first sign. And it is at a wedding. And so what do we learn in this? And we will study that this morning. If you're able, I invite you uh, to stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence. As we stand together to hear from the word this morning. John 2 verse 1 begins. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to us in this text. Show us what you were saying in this miracle. I pray, Lord, for your people to be reminded that Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament and he gives us meaning and purpose and fulfillment. Pray that we would be reminded that in Jesus there is perfect joy, everlasting joy. I pray also for 
those who are not yet your disciples, either in this room or listening via Facebook or radio. And I pray, Lord, that as they are searching for meaning in life and not finding it by looking other places, that they would look to Jesus, be reconciled to God, find purpose and great, unending, and unequal joy. I ask you to do these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've read this miracle many times this week. I've wrestled with this sign this week. I'm pleased to hear, I'm not saying I'm wrestling with the truthfulness of it. I 100% believe Jesus miraculously turned water into wine. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, look, I've, I've heard this story since I was in children's church. I've read it dozens of times, hundreds of times. What's so hard about it that you're wrestling with it, Pastor? Well, here's the thing. John reports the miracle, said it manifests Jesus' glory. His disciples believed in him. But John doesn't explain it. John gave no comment from Jesus about it. This morning... In our Sunday school class, we studied in John chapter 9, first seven verses, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And then the next 30-something verses are a discussion of this miracle, mainly between the healed man and the Pharisees, but it culminates in Jesus in verse 39 of that chapter saying, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, those who know they're spiritually needy will turn to Jesus and see. Those who think they're not, they won't turn to Jesus and they'll be blind. So there we get a lot of teaching about what happened in that miracle. We don't get that type of explanation here, do we? Instead, no teaching from Jesus about it, no explanation of John. Here's the miracle. Jesus manifests his glory. Disciples believe Off to Capernaum. So we need to do the hard work of rightly interpreting and applying this passage. So how did Jesus turning water into wine at an anonymous couple's wedding in an obscure village manifest Jesus' glory and draw his disciples to believe in him? That's what we need to know. What is Jesus revealing about himself in this miracle? So here's my theme. Jesus gives ultimate fulfillment and unequal joy. That's what we're driving toward today. Jesus gives ultimate fulfillment and unequal joy. All right, so let's look at what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. They attend, and a big problem arises. The groom's family ran out of wine. Now, on the surface, this is not a big deal to us. Our weddings and the receptions that follow may last uh, a few hours. If you run out of bacon-wrapped shrimp and I'm at your wedding, I might be disappointed. It's not a disaster. This is a different culture, though. Wedding celebrations might last a week in this culture. 
And don't forget, this is an honor-shame society. To experience shame in that culture was a huge deal. And the groom's family was obligated to provide hospitality for those who attend. That's why we see the master of the feast calling the bridegroom when he has tasted that new wine. So to run out of wine at this event, week-long celebration, where the groom's family provides hospitality, meant extraordinary shame for that family. Even to the point where potential lawsuits could arise from the bride's family against the groom's family for merely running out of wine. So this, this is a debacle at this point. This is a disaster. Now, it's likely that Mary is related to or close friends with one of the parties of the wedding as she takes it upon herself to approach Jesus about the wine running out. So she comes to Jesus, and Jesus greets her, to say the least, in an odd way to our ears. Men and boys in the room, see how it goes if you go up to mama today and say, woman, you might be 50, but still find yourself on the wrong end of a wooden spoon, gentlemen. Don't you call mama that. I say that and sometimes I'll joke with my mom in that way. So, uh, But this is a different culture. And remember, Jesus is always sinless, so he's not disrespecting his mother here. In fact, later on in John's gospel, he'll use the term again with his mother, this time from the cross, where he is securing for her and her future through this very same John who writes the letter as he instructs John to basically take care of his mother. So it's not a disrespectful term as Jesus uses it here, but it is a term implying a change in their relationship moving forward. So by calling her woman, what we probably should focus on is what he doesn't call her, which is mom, mama. So he's showing there's a transition in their relationship. She has to see him as the Messiah who is beginning his ministry. So I think by this term, what is implied is Mary has to see Jesus not first as her son, but as her Savior. She gave birth to him, wiped his nose as a kid, raised him, saw him grow into a carpenter. She's depended upon him in light of Joseph's death, likely. But now she has to see him as more. She has to see him different than just her son. This past Wednesday night, we began a study of the book of James in here together. Love for you to attend that if you have not yet. Um, but James, the one who writes the book, is also the half-brother of Jesus. And he was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. It is only after the resurrection that be, he becomes a Christ follower. But he had to surrender to Jesus' lordship. This family could not depend on human relationship with him. John the Baptist has already twice announced Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
Mary and James had to have their sin taken away by Jesus, by putting their faith in him. And so there is a change in relationship that must be taking place here. No one, not even Jesus' family, is reconciled to the holy God any other way than by faith in Jesus. This past week, we as a family spent time studying about how the mediator between God and man had to be fully but sinlessly human and also be God. We memorize 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Every person must see him as their Savior. You, me, and also Mary. Now in verse 5, we see Mary respond in faith. Do whatever he tells you. So that's believing, she acts in faith, and she has submitted to his, uh, to his instruction there. But now let's see the rest of Jesus' words to mom in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now just on the surface, it's not real clear what, what that means. Now Mary does receive it as Jesus is going to do something. She responds in verse 5. But it seems to me that Jesus is saying, your motivation, Mary, and my motivation are different. Now you can understand her point of view. She wants to help this couple that she knows and avoid the shame that would come upon them if they have run out of wine. His motivation is different. He grounds his reply to her in that sentence at the end. My hour has not yet come. Now, we should see here at the very beginning of John's gospel that when Jesus talks about his hour in this gospel, he is referring to his crucifixion. I think you can combine crucifixion and resurrection, but that's what he is pointing to. Let me give you just a couple of examples of that. In chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Then in chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So the purpose of Jesus' incarnation, his life, his ministry, is found in the cross. And here in John 2, his hour hasn't arrived yet but everything in his earthly ministry is leading to that point. So Jesus is working in this situation, even at the beginning of his ministry, toward that end. Not first just to the concern of this wedding party. So when he says, what does this have to do with me? I think he, he may mean something like this. Mary, you're driven by the situation of the wedding, the shame that will come to the couple by the absence of wine. That's not what's driving me. What's driving me is the hour of my approaching death. I've got that in mind at the beginning of my ministry, and every sign I do points to that hour and for people to believe. So what I'm going to do here is a way of manifesting my glory so the disciples believe. So Jesus' hour and his glory. We said his hour is his coming death, but his glory is wrapped up in that, specifically in John's gospel. So as we study this gospel, we're going to pay attention to what's in it, 
But I think we should also see what's omitted in it. And one of the things that John doesn't include in his gospel is Jesus' transfiguration. Now that might surprise you. Because you would think if any of the gospel writers would include that event, it was the guy who, one of the guys who witnessed it. There were three of those guys, the inner three of which John was one. So why would John not include it when the other gospel writers do? And here's what I think, studying this for a time. He doesn't want anything to distract from the glory that takes place in his death and resurrection. In John's gospel, glory is always driving toward that end, toward that place. I'll give you this from John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, hour of his death, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. All right, so seeing the hour and Jesus' glory at the cross as John is writing. So we come back to this first sign where Jesus manifests his glory. And so this first sign is an early step foreshadowing that glory. The manifestation of his glory must mean a visible demonstration of the person and work of the Son of God who would eventually die for our sins to make his church his bride. I love how one scholar speculated that the anonymous bridegroom of chapter 2, we don't get this guy's name right, is fulfilled in how John the Baptist describes Jesus as the groom just one chapter later. In chapter 3, where he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John knows Jesus is the groom that he is pointing toward. All right, so. We, we've got the stage set, and so the, the request has been brought to Jesus in this story. Now, what else happens and what is symbolized in it? Well, let's see the comment of the master of the feast about the new wine. But let's not see it as merely relegated to the wine. I think it's ultimately applied to Jesus. This guy said, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the, the master of the feast, as he's called, is surprised at how things take place. That the good stuff came last. Now, kids in here, you understand some of this. We can contrast with what happens at Christmas. You know that the first gift that you're going to open on Christmas morning is not the big gift. Or if you don't know that, I'm, I'm letting you know that, okay? Your parents have planned this out, right? So you're not opening the socks last most of the time, right? The socks might be first. I know you're not thrilled with socks, right? You get that gift and you're like, if this is it, this is really disappointing. Come on, Mom. You know that the last gift is going to be the Lego or the gaming system or whatever big gift that you're waiting on. The best was saved for last. Well, that was not the normal practice that took place with wine at a wedding. They served the good wine first, 
When people's palates were dulled, then they brought out the cheap stuff. That's what they expect at this wedding. And here's the master of the feast, and he's ignorant about the miracle, right? He, it, it's, it's amazing probably how few people who attended this wedding knew what Jesus had done. Master of the feast does not know what has happened, but he's shocked that the best quality wine is brought in at the end. And church, let's be careful to see Jesus is revealing his glory in this symbolism. How? All right, let's go into the text. I don't think John gives irrelevant, unimportant details when he says there in verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Here's these massive water jars. And we see very clearly Jewish rites of purification. So perhaps it's important at a public event like this one that the people and the things are ritually pure. Now, yes, it's a wedding, but it's a first century wedding. So let's put ourselves in that mindset. And maybe we can speculate that those who attend the wedding, it was required for them to wash their hands before celebrating. Now you say, well, I get it. I've shaken a lot of hands this morning before I eat. I'm going to wash my hands. Please do that, by the way. It's good for you. But what's going on here is not a hygiene issue. That is not what these water jars of purification are for. It's, it's, it's not to become better hand washers in case of disease. This is Jewish ritual. It's external purification. So I want you to hear this in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So this is a ceremonial type of act for ritual purification. Again, this is just externals. So as Jesus responds to this, he will teach in verse 15 of Mark 7, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he's saying there that cleaning yourself up outwardly doesn't cleanse you inwardly. Your heart, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. There's there's evil inside of us. And this ritual purification can't touch that. So the law has a good purpose in God's redemptive plan. But it was never meant to save. The law could not change a heart. The law could only show us our sin and our need. It could not cleanse us from our sin. Only Jesus can. All right, so you've heard all that. So why is, why is this the first sign that John records of Jesus? I mean, on the surface, it seems so trivial, doesn't it? Water and wine, obscure village, anonymous couple. They avoid shame. But what is going on here? 
I don't think we should see this as John saying, well, this, this was Jesus' first sign. It was a warm-up. He was just seeing if he could do harder ones later on. Instead, yes, it's first in terms of the chronology, but I think he is setting the stage also for what's going to follow. Water into wine isn't the main point. Instead, something better than the law is here. Something bigger than ritual external purification is offered in this Messiah. Jesus brings the new and the greater. So the water of ritual purification is replaced by the superior wine of the sin-destroying Lamb of God. I think that's what is going on here, is Jesus is fulfilling all that the Old Testament pointed to. Now, if context helps us, the next account that we have, and Lord willing, we will preach that next week, is Jesus cleansing the temple. The teaching, the takeaway from that is, one greater than the temple is here. The temple represents God dwelling among us. But in the person of the incarnate Son of God, we have Emmanuel, God dwelling among us. Jesus replaces the temple. So here you have jars of water that gave ritual purification. But only the Lamb of God can clean up a heart and a life. This is what we're seeing here. I think this miracle is an example of what Paul wrote in Romans 8.3. Our college students have been studying Romans 8.3. I won't make them come up and see if they can quote it. But here's what it says there. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Law wasn't the problem. It's weakened by our sinful nature. We couldn't live up to it. Here's what God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Old Testament law, crucially important. But its goal is Jesus Christ. Never meant to end at ritual purification. It was meant to point us to Jesus Christ who through his blood can wash our sins away. Here's what the scholars Carter and Redberg said. The shadow found in the law has been replaced by the substance. Now that Jesus is here, things have changed. The water of ceremony has been replaced with something far greater. External purification has given way to internal cleansing. See how the author of Hebrews says it in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Bulls and goats, they couldn't get down to the heart. They're all pointing to Jesus. And on the cross, he perfectly fulfills the Jewish sacrificial system. And he offers to us the cleansing from sin. Only Jesus does that. 
So don't miss the details here. Jesus said to fill the jars with water. And then verse 7, I love this. And they filled them to the brim. There's no room left for anything else. Don't mix Jesus with law keeping. Don't mix faith in Jesus with trying to get there through works. Don't mix faith in Jesus with other religious ideas. Trust in Jesus alone. We have mentioned this fulfillment. We live in a world that is longing for meaning and fulfillment and purpose. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be rightly related to God. And God created each and every one of us for the ultimate purpose of knowing Him. Until we do that, we're groping about in darkness, looking for meaning that's only found in Him. We see in this world a hunger, a hunger for that purpose and meaning. May we point our world to Jesus Christ. May we find our meaning in Christ and may we point others to Him. Now, we can likely see in this story that Jesus fulfills the law. He replaces, he he shows what it was pointing to. What may not be on the surface is the theme of joy that's running underneath this. Jesus is the joy giver. In my ESV study Bible, there's a note about this that said, The wedding parties running out of wine may be seen as symbolizing the spiritual barrenness of first century Judaism, especially against an Old Testament background that viewed wine, but never drunkenness, as a sign of joy and God's blessing. I want to draw your attention to some of these Old Testament verses. In Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, the psalmist wrote, You caused the grass to grow for the livestock, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So if the Jew associated wine with joy because of this and many other verses in the Old Testament, and if Jesus provides an abundance of wine, and an excellent quality of wine at this uh, wedding, a reason Jesus does this was to show that he is the joy-producing Messiah. One of the characteristic descriptions of the reign of Messiah from the prophets is an abundance of wine, which equals an abundance of joy. In Jeremiah chapter 31, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and I shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. In Amos chapter 9, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. What the prophets are pointing to, Jesus fulfills as the Messiah who ushers in an age of joy. 
So what's all this saying about Jesus' glory? How do we get to the fact that Jesus manifests his glory? Well, first, there's power just in the miracle itself. The disciples knew that this was just water. And no mere human could take water and turn into wine, much less the best wine that this master of the feast had tasted that day. You and I can't do that, can we? If I go over to your house, you ask me what I want to drink, I'm not saying wine, okay? I don't want that. But let's say I say Sprite. You say, I don't have any Sprite. And I say, well, just pour some water into a cup and turn it into it. You can't do that. I can't do that. Nobody can. Only God, who presided over creation, can do a miracle of nature like this one, which is what Jesus does. That's one way Jesus manifests his glory and the disciples believe. But I think it's the meaning underneath it also that displays his glory. He is what the law has been pointing to all these years. He doesn't just make people ritually pure. Nobody came in those front doors this morning and we poured water over your hands so you could say, I'm ritually pure to enter into this building. What Jesus does is much deeper. He takes us who are filthy with sin and through his blood washes us white as snow. He makes us inwardly clean. And when he does that, folks, let's just say, all the inferior joys that we chase melt in the ultimate joy of having our sin forgiven by the Holy God. There is no greater joy than being reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Nothing touches that. He manifests his glory and his disciples believe. Now you remember the purpose of John writing. I'm going to keep drawing you back to chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The reason Jesus changes water into wine here is so that we will see his glory and believe. That's what happens to the disciples here. But, Folks, there's some folks who also saw what Jesus had done. They knew. We see there that the servants knew about the miracle. But we get no report that they believe. That's an argument from science. I understand that. But there's likelihood they saw this miracle and they missed the sign. They failed to behold Jesus' glory. Don't do that. Don't miss the glory of Jesus. The signs are meant to bring about belief. <clears throat> and then may this wedding, may this occasion point us to what Daniel read about this morning, the marriage supper of the Lamb. On that day, Jesus saved a wedding that could have ended in a colossal embarrassment. And he made it an enormous celebration. Where there could have been misery, there was joy. Believer, that language of wedding should make us look ahead. The church is the bride of Christ. Our groom in Ephesians 5, 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If our groom did that, church, isn't that a reason for great rejoicing? And that will culminate in another wedding event in Revelation 19. As this same author, John, writes that, toward the end of the Bible, he says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Do you see there? Purity, rejoicing. What Jesus brings to us. That day is going to be a day of great joy. Every day after that day for the church will be a day of great joy. Believer, that joy begins for us now. And for the person in the room who has not yet turned to Christ in faith. You're saying, preacher, don't tell me to stop looking for happiness. I am not. I am saying, I can't tell you to stop looking for happiness. That's what you're going to do. You're going to look for joy. You want to be happy. But here's what I can tell you. There is no greater happiness than being rightly related to God through faith in Christ. So I want to call you not to fleeting joy, not to a temporary happiness, and not to something small. I want you to have great joy, ultimate joy, unending joy. And that is through faith in Christ. So believer, rejoice in this miracle that I've wrestled with this week, but I believe God has shown us in Jesus fulfilling the law, giving great joy. And for the person who hasn't yet turned to faith in Christ today, I don't see why you shouldn't. Turn to Jesus for the cleansing of sin and for the fullness of joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the struggle of trying to find the right interpretation, hopefully getting there. Hopefully your word has come forward to our people today. In spirit of God, we ask that you do what no human being could do in the reading and preaching of your word, Lord, that you would convict the heart of those apart from you to see they need to turn to Jesus. There's no other way to be made right with God except through faith in Christ. Lord, I pray today you'd also encourage your church. I don't know what's going on in the heart of every person on each pew here this morning, but we live in a fallen world, and we need the reminder that Jesus cleanses from sin. He has made a bride for himself, and he will give that bride great eternal joy. And I pray that our rejoicing is in that as being part of the bride of Christ. Spirit of God, Work in every heart in this room as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray.